Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is uh, Dr. Stephanie Wright. She's a research fellow at Imperial College London. Uh, For some reason, I thought she was thousands of miles away in Australia. I don't know why, but she's in London. So uh, we're going to talk about her research into uh, microplastics, perhaps nanoplastics, microplastics. Stephanie, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what got you interested in uh, studying this stuff? Um, so I did marine biology. That was my uh, my undergraduate degree and just loved it. I was a massive geek, went to every lecture, loved my practicals, loved learning. And someone suggested, well, my tutor there suggested I uh, I think about a PhD. And one of the sort of standout themes or modules I took was a um a pollution and toxicology module and so that really triggered my my interest in pursuing that kind of research further and I came across an advert for a PhD um in toxicology or what we call ecotoxicology at the University of Exeter um it was to study microplastics um at the time I had no idea what they were had never heard of them this was back in I think uh, 2000 and 11 um but really fancied the challenge fancied the opportunity so i went for it and um and that's how i got into it all okay very good so um when you were studying marine mammals and animals um did you run into microplastics did you encounter animals that had you know ingested them or uh, you know gotten caught in them and killed by them so I was actually looking at, um, I was doing laboratory-based research and I was looking at the impact of microplastics following ingestion. So I worked on marine worms, um, which kind of look like the earthworms that you'd find in the soil in your garden, but they live in sandy seabeds on the sort of North European, North American shores. And um, they just ingest sand. That's how they feed. They extract lots of their um nutrients and energy from all the bits of detritus trapped in between the sediment grains. So I was looking at what would happen if some of those sediment grains were replaced with plastic. Um, In particular, I looked at a polyvinyl chloride um, microplastic and we found it negatively impacted their feeding activity. So they were feeding less. Uh, We found it also compromised their ability to, uh, to store energy. So they had reduced biochemical energy reserves as well um yeah so 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 we did find some pretty negative impacts on their health and these at the time were at concentrations which were high but uh overlapped with some of the highest reported for a uh, sediment uh contamination how do you think plastics turn into microplastics so it's uh there's a few different processes um the sort of most prominent that we we believe is sunlight exposure so plastic litter that's out in the environment exposed to sunlight undergoes a degradation pathway it's triggered by uv um, so we call it photooxidation uh, and this is a sort of ongoing process when it's triggered and it and it turns into what we call auto oxidation and 
throughout this process the plastic essentially becomes more brittle um, and so it can very easily fragment and um, shed pieces. Um, the other way is, is um, through microbial degradation so microbes can utilize carbon in it once it's been weakened like that but the most prominent pathway is via sunlight exposure. So um, sunlight will well, what will break some of the bonds between the polymer change and then yeah, exactly, it makes it brittle yeah. and then what it uh, let's say a piece of plastic mechanically smashes up against something or sand grains wear on it and that allows it to further come apart yeah exactly so once it's in that brittle state i guess any sort of mechanical um stress or, or abrasion for that matter will cause it to fragment micro particles but then aside from sunlight there's also of course abrasion which can happen during use so for example um, wearing synthetic clothing on a day-to-day -day basis obviously undergoes a bit of wear and tear that's from friction uh, from sitting down standing up from walking and that process can also um, cause it to fragment as well whether it has or hasn't been exposed to sunlight is um <clears throat> Have people characterized the origin of you know microplastics? Uh, are they predominantly from soda bottles? Are they predominantly from clothing? You know, does it depend on the region? Like, how many different types of microplastics are there? What are their origins? So, there are a few key polymers. Um, so, by polymer, we mean the type of plastic, whether it's polystyrene, polyethylene, polypropylene. Um, we generally find probably about six prominent polymers in the environment. So some main offenders, no matter where you look. Um, so across water, sediment, soils, air, we typically always find polyethylene, polypropylene, polystyrene, often polyamide and polyethylene terephthalate. Um, across the literature, if you were to look at everything that's been found so far, you'd probably conclude that fibres were more common than fragments. And fibres are originating from textiles, from upholstery, clothes, etc. Um, but it can also depend on the size distribution you're looking at. So for example, most recent studies looking at microplastics in air actually find it in the smaller size bracket, so the smaller your particle size, um, sort of below maybe 150 microns or so, you'd actually find more fragments than fibres in those size brackets. So there's a few different factors at play. Um, but on the whole, we, we typically say fibres are the most prominent in the environment. Has anyone tried to argue or demonstrate that any of this could be naturally occurring or is that impossible? So plastics themselves are synthetic. So to be naturally occurring would be impossible. So we, we synthesise them from, uh, we use petrochemicals as the carbon source. Um, there are also uh, plastics which we refer to as being semi-synthetic. So they're still synthesized, but in that instance, we would use plant-based material as the carbon source. And so a type of plastic um, which is semi-synthetic would be rayon or cellulose acetate, but it is still a synthesized plastic. Um, natural polymers obviously do occur, so things like um, naturally occurring rubber, plant material, cellulose, they're all polymers too, um, but obviously of natural origin. So plastics will come from a synthetic background. Okay, I just want to be sure. And then um, the degradation, does anyone have a lab set up where they're exposing a bottle to sunlight, let's say, and churning it, you know, in a drum with sand and trying to accelerate this microplastic production? Like, has anyone been able to recreate the process? I'm not calling into question that it doesn't happen, but, you know, again, has it been recreated? 
Yeah, there, there are a few studies actually. Um, so I, I know there's a team in uh, South Korea who, who do study this in a lot of detail and have essentially kind of simulated uh, a few different environmental conditions. So I think they take a, a, a glass bottle and they'll put some sand in there and then some pieces of plastic and have it on rotation and also have it under artificial light, so UV light. And then over time, essentially, they measure what's coming off. They separate their plastic particles from the sediment and look at how the size distributions changed and then seeing more and more small particles appear as time goes on and, you know, the rotation and abrasion UV weathering occurs um, indicates that microplastics are forming from the pieces of plastic inside. There's also a study that looked at um, nanoparticle formation. So um, in this instance, there was a, a sort of a closed system. It was just a, a artificial seawater with polystyrene. I think polystyrene beads or granules added and again there was a sort of simulated wave action and UV light um, and then uh, particles were sort of measured over time and it was shown that nanoparticles were forming um, but the challenge there is, is is proving what composition the nanoparticles are so it's easy to show their presence but then to say that they are actually nanoplastics is still an analytical challenge but it does suggest that they can form um, in the environment. End of the road. Um, is it microparticle? Is it nanoparticle? Is it even I mean, complete degradation? Has that been observed or, or quantified? It's a really good question. Um, and, and it is really hard, obviously, to measure. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of figures banded about out there that I'm not even sure where they come from. You know, you sometimes read it takes 450 years for a bottle to degrade. And I have no idea how, how anyone could ever measure that because that's quite a long time. Um, but whether they like plastic actually ever fully remineralizes is still unknown. There's still not uh, a laboratory study to show that these petrochemical based polymers at least can fully remineralize. Um, and again, measuring nanoparticles in the environment and nanoplastics, so not just measuring the size of something, but actually showing what it's composed of is really, really, really challenging. Um, and, you know, it's something that we've still not really been able to do. So I think some of the smallest sizes that we've found in the environment so far are on the order of a few microns. Um, then, of course, when you've got the simulated studies, it suggests that they can be smaller as well. But to find those in the environment is a real challenge. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you how long it takes on average. Like if you have, um, I don't know how you quantify this, but if you have a monolithic plastic something, um, would you quantify that? I don't know, after um, a year, you know, 10 to 15% of it would degrade to microplastic. And then after 10 years, up to 20%. And after, you know, perhaps you could quantify the breakdown of an object in that way somehow to, to see how long it takes, quote unquote, to, you know, because it, it doesn't matter if 90% of the object is still there. If 10% is degraded and forms like 124 million microplastics, then, yeah, that's significant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so there are actually other fields looking at this from the other angle. So, for example, in polymer engineering and, you know, polymer um, design, um, there are people interested in the resistance. So not really the microplastics forming or how many are forming and being released, but more like the tensile strength and the resistance of the material over time. And so in 
in that field, um, degradation would be measured by in terms of things like loss of tensile strength, um, microstructural changes on the surface, you know, lots of cracks forming and sort of um, crevices and things. And I guess also you could have a loss of mass as well as an indication of loss of, uh, of material. Um, but from a microplastics angle, it's still not really been defined. Um, and I guess that is just because it's hard to replicate what goes on in the environment in the lab. So there are um, weathering chambers that exist, um, which essentially, yeah, have a, again, UV light. Um, some of them are quite advanced and you can change the humidity inside as well. Um, and they're meant to sort of essentially artificially weather polymers and resins and things um, to check their durability. But the, the issue is that it's very difficult to know how that translates to real world so if you've got you know uv light at a certain um, intensity for a certain time um, you can calibrate it to have an indication of what that means in terms of time outside i think actually the standard relating it to um to florida sunshine um so how long you know it's a sort of equivalent time uh yeah exposed to florida sunshine which is a lot sunnier than here um but yeah there's still a question mark over really how relevant that is and what it actually means so it's so so there's a lot of uh, a lot of unknowns i guess for us at the moment well has anyone tried to tag garbage with a little camera or at least a location sensor to see where it goes and where it sits and i mean you'd have to do a lot of it in order to really get a feel but um maybe there's a way to do it i i'm, I'm picturing myself as like a you know a piece of plastic i'd be in you know, anaerobic conditions, aerobic, buried under stuff, uncovered, you know, laying in water for a while in the sun, out of the sun, you know, churning over stuff. I mean, there's a lot of different conditions I would be exposed to if I was one of those pieces of plastic, you know. Definitely. Um, yeah, there are studies. So there are, you know, oceanographic modelers who, um, well, back in the day before plastic pollution was um, such a prominent issue, they'd actually use sort of tagged studies um, to understand how the currents move. So the global ocean and how the global currents work and move and connect. So they'd send out, I don't know, I guess, GIS tagged um, sort of, I think, you know, um, floating devices. And they'd basically record where in the world they end up as a form of mapping and understanding the ocean and the currents essentially um, and all that legacy has become very important in plastic pollution research because um, floating debris and floating plastic debris in particular because it's so buoyant and so light and susceptible to long-range transport actually follows very similar patterns um, and paths you know uh, trajectories once it's in the ocean. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So plastic uh, in the ocean, we know, will typically end up, if it doesn't sink out quickly and obviously accumulate on the sea floor, um, will often wind its way up into these large oceanic gyres and these, these big circulating currents. Um, we have about five of them across the North Atlantic, South Atlantic, Pacific Ocean um, and Indian Ocean. And yeah, there's, there's big rotating masses of water. We actually call the, the quite similar to deserts. The core of them is fairly barren, 
um, from an ecological perspective, but you do get these kind of trash vortexes um, circulating around. Um, we also know the seafloor is a big sink for plastic pollution um, and the sediments in general, because uh, depending on the size of the particle, things become colonized very quickly by microbes. Um, you know, you'll have different invertebrates and larvae settling on these particles and that affects buoyancy density and encourages them to to sink out of suspension um, but away from the ocean we also know there are other sinks so we're really just starting to appreciate that land and especially soils are probably a microplastic sink and that's more to do with human activity than it is to do with meteorolo meteorology or um, natural influence um, so for example uh, going back to the idea of clothing being a source of synthetic fibers every time we wash our clothes in a in a household washing machine there's a emission of synthetic fibers down the drain and they actually get captured at wastewater treatment plants in sludge and then at least in europe and the uk a large proportion of, of that sludge i think it's about 80 percent is actually applied to agricultural fields as a soil conditioner so whilst wastewater treatment plants are very effective at capturing I think upward of 90% of microplastics that come out of household waste streams, um, it's actually likely being reapplied to land. Um, so we're just starting to build up this idea that at least microplastics in the environment, there's a very complex network of pathways and it's becoming much more 3d you know it's not just surface of the ocean and the sediment we've also got this idea of microplastics in the air and cycling to land cycling back to rivers and yeah it's, it's a big uh, messy net <laughs> yeah, that's horrible net. <laughs> i mean it sounds like you know clothes dryers and washing machines should be um you know should have specific filters on them to pull out the microplastics before they get into the waste stream. And then the fact that they're going into crops, I mean, yeah. I would bet, I guess, if you know, I'm sure people have been sampled and they probably have a microplastics load inside all of us, right? Any science there? There's a, there was a paper which came out last year, which measured uh, microplastics in human stool. So that was one I didn't want to do. <laughs> I left that to others to do that. But um, yeah, so it was it was pioneering. It's it's the first piece of evidence to indicate that microplastics are passing through, you know, and sort of really affirming the fact that we are exposed to these these things in our diet. Um, so this was a study in which eight volunteers um, sort of scattered around the world, so so geographically dispersed. Um, each uh, sent sent back to the lab. It was a lab in Vienna. Sent back a sample of their feces after um, sort of careful collection. You know they had very sort of uh, strict um, instructions and a special collection pack and things to avoid plastic contamination that might be occurring in the household. Um, and a hundred percent of these samples contained microplastics. And I think there was something like around twenty microplastics per hundred grams of stool on average. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, what about the uh, the mechanical, the electrical properties of you know microplastics? I'm sure somebody's studying that. Like, um, you know, I know plastics are probably insulators for the most part, yes. but yes. when you have you know countless microplastics, um, how do they act when they're you know ingested? How do they act when they're in a given area, dispersed? You know, what do they do? Do they 
you know, disturb or create their own electric field, depending on their, like, their shape or morphology of their fibers, you know, what, mm, are they insulative yeah. in a certain way? Like, who's studying that? That's a really good point. Um, so, in general, it's assumed that with aging and weathering and time and sort of, um, yeah, I guess following UV oxidation and perhaps coating and attrition of uh, mineral grains and things to their surface, it's assumed that microplastics in the environment either will have a neutral or slightly negative um, charge on them. Um, it's very different in the lab. You know, you get lots of static when you're working with pristine particles it makes them very difficult to recognize but generally it's assumed at least in the environment after you know if they form through prolonged weathering and aging process that they're more likely to have a, a negative charge but how that would change um you know or how the different conditions of the digestive tract would influence that charge um hasn't actually well there's no published data on it yet let's put it that way um so there's possibly people working on it but it's not in the public eye um but then thinking or going back to the fiber issue um one of the most uh sort of recognized or famous um examples of a plastic occupational disease is in the flocking industry and flock is shortcut nylon fiber so it's a, a nylon fiber polyamide um, it's cut very short and it's used in upholstery to create that kind of fake suede um, fuzzy effect on materials um, but when it's cut with a rotary mill it can generate a very 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 fine respirable dust which can enter the lower lung if inhaled and of course if you're working in that area and there's a high concentration of it in the air you're quite likely to so there has been outbreaks of um, occupational lung disease in response to this kind of exposure um, and it's been hypothesized that that perhaps one of the properties that makes it you know, that causes this chronic inflammation of the lung is potentially because it's positively charged because it's, it's um, polycationic in terms of its surface chemistry. Um, but again, it's just a hypothesis. No one's looked at it yet. Well, um, I guess to bring us uh, to today, you know, everyone's wearing masks lately. Uh, do you hypothesize perhaps they may be breathing in microfibers from the, uh, the masks they're wearing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's potential. Um, yeah absolutely if it's you know it i mean it would all depend i guess on the uh on the weave of the textile you know and the, whether it's woven or non-woven so wovens are more likely to to fragment to shed um, you know to fracture if you like and, and release fibers than non-wovens are um, so it probably would to a degree depend on that um so yeah i guess the, the weave of your textile um but it's, it's definitely a chance that that's happening um I mean, I know there was some research sort of a few decades ago now actually looking at fiber, uh, microfiber release from cigarette filters, um, because obviously cigarette filters are a sort of woven mishmash of um, cellulose acetate, actually. Um, so that that semi-synthetic polymer. Um, and yeah, you've, you've got thousands of micro-sized fibers packed in there to act as a filter. And, and there is some evidence that microfibers can be released from those as well upon inhalation. Um, but I mean, I guess it is, I'm quite hesitant to say, because obviously the benefits of wearing the mask is probably, it probably does outweigh, you know, what might happen if you inhale a couple of fibres. And actually what's important with respect to inhaling anything, and especially microplastics and fibres and things, is of course their size, um, 
but not their physical size, their aerodynamic size. So how they behave as a combination of their shape, their material density and their physical size. Um, because if it's only the very small particles of an aerodynamic equivalent diameter of 10 microns or below, which will enter your central airway um, due to aerodynamics. Gotcha. Um, also, too, when, when plastics are made, I don't imagine that they're just pure polymer chains, perfectly bonded. I would think that maybe uh, other substances are trapped in between them um, and there's that perfect uh, you know, plastic making so that when it degrades, I would think there'd be islands of other material that might get unlocked and then leach into the environment. Any study yeah, there? De- definitely. Um, so not still not yet from microplastics because it's just still, uh, it doesn't feel like early days anymore, but it, it feels like the emphasis is more being on occurrence in the environment and ecological impacts. But um, I guess, again, it's quite hard to measure that sort of thing in a lab because you have to really simulate environmental conditions that are never quite representative or you know you can't easily replicate it Um, because that's a big question mark really is for microplastics in the environment that have undergone this really prolonged aging weathering degradation process um you know do any residual additives remain inside them or have they all leached out so during manufacturing um obviously you have your polymer but then you also have added to it a whole range of different chemicals that change that polymer's properties um, and that's really what a plastic is you know it's a heavily modified synthetic organic polymer so polymer plus additive equals plastic um, and these additives range you know you have things like antimicrobials you have flame retardants you have um, uv stabilizers um, heat stabilizers you have pigments you have dyes so a whole range of, of additives that can be added to give it the properties that we recognize in the products we use um, But yeah, these are all susceptible to leaching out, um, whether that's during its use or whether it's afterwards. And that's because the additives aren't chemically bonded to the polymer. They're just, they're added. And I guess they kind of just, the molecules sit within this matrix, this polymer matrix, but they're not, they're not chemically bonded in any way. Um, But the leaching, uh, there is research looking into the rates of leaching from bigger bits of plastic. And it's shown that, um, that that certain uh, um, factors, so abiotic factors such as temperature, pH can affect the rate of leaching, but then also things like um, whether it's leaching into a water or or a um, lipid rich solution. So there's some work that's looked at uh, leaching of these chemicals from microplastics in marine invertebrates, uh, fish and birds. Uh, And in particular, this has been modelled as well as uh, based on some laboratory based work. And yeah, it suggests that those animals that have uh well that are mammals essentially that maintain physiological temperature of about 37 degrees um there's a higher leaching in gastrointestinal fluid under those conditions yeah has anyone looked at the uh the typical body burden of microplastics or plastics you know i, I drink from you know a soda bottle I, I eat something off a plastic plate or a plastic fork i wear clothing i you know i would think that the average person may be exposed to the additives plus the plastics plus you know microplastics uh, quite a bit sure definitely so there's a whole wealth of research that's looked into uh, to body burdens of um, additives you know in particular things like bisphenol a 
phthalates, they've all been quite heavily studied in the past in um, epidemiological studies, looking at yeah, concentrations in blood and urine. Um, but the challenge is that is, is separating that from microplastic exposure because those additives are actually, you know, you're not just exposed to them because you're ingesting microplastic containing them. They're actually um, sort of free and in a lot of other types of matrices. So for example, dust is quite heavily contaminated with flame retardants because it migrates out of your electronic casing or your sofa upholstery um, and associates with, you know, whatever's in the household dust, for example. Um, we obviously, in terms of body burdens of microplastics, I mean, there is the human stool study, which came out, which I've mentioned, um, which kind of confirmed we're exposed to them in our diet. And then other than that, there are really just exposure estimates based on occurrence data. So there are studies which have looked at concentrations of microplastics in bottled water, in sea salt, in um, shellfish, in um uh, yeah th those sorts of types of food um but the foods that have been investigated actually only represent 15 percent of the average american's caloric intake so there's a whole 85 percent of diet that hasn't been explored yet so what estimates we do have are also obviously underestimates and then i guess uh last question for now i know i'm asking you about the entire <laughs> fields all in one but that's fine <laughs> The, uh, the microbes that associate with different plastics, are there ones that tend to hang around PET versus uh, you know, other plastics, for instance? And depending on size, do microbes ingest them? Do they, I don't know, do they live on their surfaces? Like what kind of interactions do you see? So microbes definitely colonize the surface of microplastic and that's been shown, you know, for microplastics sampled in the middle of the ocean, on the ocean surface or in rivers. Um, so they do definitely have an assemblage of microbes. Um, up until a few months ago, I, I actually, I was in the camp where I thought that um, you get very specific strains that will favour one polymer versus another. But there has been a, a couple of papers, including a review paper out recently, which suggests that the microbes are less picky um, and that the studies which have shown the occurrence of these types of microbes on the, on the surface of microplastics don't have any comparative particles. You know, they don't have a non-plastic particle to compare to. Um, so it's hard to show that it's a preference for microplastic over something else rather than it just being the fact that microplastic will be colonized and um, so I think that that whole field well for me at least is still up in the air and I think there's going to be some really interesting developments over the next few years um, but it's definitely fact you know that microbes do colonize their surface um, there have been a few strains of Vibrio which can be pathogenic on their surface um, and at the moment you know there's a lot of um, uh, hypothesizing around um, antimicrobial resistance, for example, and the role of plastic pollution in, in spreading that, those genes. Um, but as I say, I, I think at the moment it just needs some more science for any robust conclusions. Yeah, you can look at, um, you know, again, which microbes seem to be more prevalent in the presence of plastic and are they using it just as a substrate or are they, you know, feeding off of it, eating it? Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, and I guess, I mean, it's, yeah, there's obviously well, carbon um, in there. <laughs> I've just been asking you everything there is to know, I, I guess, about microplastics, but what, what in particular is your research about at, 
this moment? Uh, so my research uh, focuses on airborne microplastic pollution and human exposure and human health impacts. So I've kind of got three main strands of research. One's um, sampling and, and measuring microplastics in the air. We've really had to focus there on the analytical techniques because we're really interested in the small, really small particles that we would um, I say really small, but, you know, in relation to other particle sciences, they're not that small, <laughs> still on the micron scale. Um, but uh, the sizes that would enter your central airway and your lower lung and lead to exposure in your respiratory tract. So we're really focused on how we measure them, how we detect them, how we sample them, you know, developing those um, analytical pipelines, um, all with a focus on human exposure. Um, then in complement with that, we're in interested in internal exposure so um, aside from measuring them in the air can we find any evidence of them in the body um, you know and are there any points of accumulation and is that where we might see you know pathogenic effects tissue response potentially um, harmful impacts uh, in people um, and then alongside that we're doing in vitro toxicology so looking at um, the potential toxicity of these particles in uh, cells uh, human cell lines of the the um, airway well so are you far along into this research or is it relatively new um so for the last five years we've really been doing the air stuff and it's been really tough actually because um yeah, there's just so many challenges analytically in looking for these, you know, plastics in it, right? It's it's not like you can, and it's not, there's not a solvent, one solvent fits all plastic. So unfortunately, it's not too easy to go and do GCMS or anything. Um, we can't do ICPMS because we don't have any ions. And so um, at, from the analytical side, we rely on um, microspectroscopy, or it has traditionally been microspectroscopy, um, which up until recently involved somebody, you know, a lab, somebody in the lab looking down a microscope, looking through a sample, trying to pick out potential plastics and collect a spectrum for them and then match it to a database to figure out what they're made of. Um, so where we picked up is trying to improve some auto or introduce some automation. So we're, we've been using spectral images. Um, so we've automated that process to remove the need for a person because then that also removes the need for well it removes some observer bias and it also um uh, in, increases our chance of seeing the smaller stuff that someone might miss just looking down a microscope themselves um we've also had to develop automated uh chemometrics so the actual statistical analysis side because spectral imaging it just generates you know, millions of data points per sample which you have to make some sense out of does a, uh, a given fiber or plastic particle uh, tend to attract other particles or repel them? Yeah, no, um, they get quite dirty. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that's that's one of the challenges when when uh, in, in if you do use the looking down a microscope trying to pick out plastic particles part um, for air because you know your air sample is essentially just particles because. The air is full of particulate matter, microscopic, so you can't see it, but it is. And it's things like you know, mineral dust, um, traffic pollution, soot, bits of plant detritus and things. So your sample is, I mean, it's like if you're looking, I guess, at a sort of extracted sediment sample, you'll always have some res residual particles, but you're looking for particles amongst particles. And it's really challenging. Um, but yeah, we do see particles attached to fibres, um, so it might be that they are carriers for, for other particulate matter components as well. So what, what are you hoping to figure out you know, soon? 
in the next couple of years? Any, <laughs> any, uh, anything you're getting close to a breakthrough on? Um, yeah, so I hope so. So I think consolidating our understanding of what's in the air um, in terms of concentration in these health relevant size fractions, that's going to be really important for understanding risk because, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of talk about the risk of microplastics to human health. And to answer that, you really need to have some solid exposure data and some solid hazard data. So we're really hoping that we can really start to refine our understanding of exposure um, so yeah, what concentration are we exposed to? And that would be in terms of total microplastics, but also different polymers as well. Um, and then, yeah, in, in tandem with that to, to really start understanding their tox toxicology. Um, I'm really interested in understanding, well, firstly, if microplastics are toxic and then secondly, if they are, what is it that's driving that? Is it the polymer, you know, is it because they are plastic or is it something to do with their size or their shape or perhaps an impurity or, you know, additive leaching from them? So really just trying to figure out um, what physicochemical properties might potentially make them harmful following exposure, but then also having some kind of comparative baseline to a non-plastic particle. Um, so there's a lot of studies out there, which, you know, they're, they're good in their own right, but perhaps only focus on polystyrene beads. Um, and so if you're looking at a dose response to polystyrene beads, and that's the only particle you've got, and your control is no particles, um, how do you know that's something to do with the polystyrene, or is it something to do with just the fact that there are a lot of solid particles? And in fact, it could be any material. Um, it's just, you know, a stress response to persistent particles. So I really kind of want to figure out if there's a plastic effect, I guess. Well, what's your estimate? of um i guess the body burden or how much microplastic we're exposed to in our daily lives so current estimates at least for diet it's estimated that um we're exposed to around fifty-two thousand microplastics per year um i think that's quite conservative because obviously it's only based on this 15% of our diet um, figures that we have. So there's a lot of gaps to fill. Um, and then if you consider what's known so far about the air and what we're exposed to in the air, it bumps up to about 73,000, I think, which in terms of particles is actually quite a low abundance. So just by way of comparison, we're exposed to billions, if not trillions of nano titanium dioxide daily through our diet because it's used as an additive so you know pitching it like that it seems like a low abundance but i think at the same time there's a lot we don't know and all those the sort of figures existing so far are for what i would call a relatively coarse size fraction so for example the air estimates that we have i think the lowest particles that have been reported um you know are sort of 10 microns so there's a real gap um, in terms of our knowledge of what the concentrations look like below 10 microns. So I think at the moment, um, yeah, it's a, it's a conservative estimate of about 73,000 particles per year. But I think that's really going to increase, you know, quite quickly over the next few years as we start to gain a lot more knowledge and advance our, not just our technological capacity, but obviously our understanding too. I don't know if you speak to them, but when scientists, if they do, if they speak to industry, you know, the sources of this plastic, mm -hmm. does industry say just go away or are they concerned or, you know, what's their response so far? 
definitely well definitely concerned in that this I mean when I've been to various meetings and workshops there's always an industry representative there um they're always like from from my experience at least like keen to be involved in the conversation obviously keep up to date with things um so I I think you know at least for my contacts and the people I know um I'd say they're fairly active in this um but that's at least what I've been exposed to or, or you know what I know but whether it's sort of the, the full story or not I have no idea um yeah I mean it, but the thing is it, it is really hard to pin down so if you've got a polyamide fiber in your sample you can't take it any further than saying it's a polyamide fiber and so there's no you know you don't have any it could come from a carpet it could come from your clothing it could come from I don't know something else tire you know a worn down tire for example so it's also quite hard not just to it, it's hard to pin the blame somewhere because that is you know it is essentially a mystery as to where those particles have originated from but then also if you can match it to a, a supplier is it their fault you know they've made the carpet but they didn't make the fiber but then is it the fiber manufacturer's fault because obviously you know there's a demand for fibers and they're incredibly useful so it's really hard to pin the blame i'd say and um and but yeah one of the challenges is that we can't really forensically match anything beyond saying what the polymer is what the shape is and kind of you know guessing okay well polyamide's used for carpets a lot maybe it's come from a carpet somewhere um so i think from that element it's quite it's also quite difficult to for industry to make kind of progress because yeah, we don't really have any info yet or um, data on these sort of key contributors or problematic items or human activities. You know, we've, we're still sort of working on that source apportionment of microplastics. I gotcha. Um, oh, last question. Have you ever been to the Pacific gyres or any of the ocean gyres? Have you visited them? Uh, I've been to the Azores. <laughs> which is uh is is sort of on the edge of the uh north atlantic gyre so i've been to the north atlantic gyre or the edge of the north atlantic gyre yeah i was very fortunate to go on a um a nine-day sailing trip with um uh a, a pangea explore who now do x expedition um, so they do plastics uh pollution sort of citizen science cruises um i was lucky enough to get a spot as a guest scientist on there um and i have to say so but when so when you get there like in the sea you might see like the odd bottle floating by which in itself is quite shocking because you know you've been at sea for nine days haven't seen a single person can't see land say so like well that shouldn't be there but um but then it, it the, the with these gyres it's not that they're like these massive floating islands of garbage they're more well everybody always uses the metaphor of they're a soup you know like a plastic soup so it really is like these fragments and particles of microplastics that are in there so it kind of looks fine when you're just looking at it from the boat it's just when you drag the net through and you see all these bits of plastic that you kind of see you, know, you realize the problem but then and also the azores um the island chain you know the the ocean gyre um north atlantic gyre circulating and directly intercepts those islands so actually the beaches were pretty heavily contaminated and that was quite shocking right yeah that's terrible hmm. Well, very interesting. Stephanie, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? 
That's a good question. <laughs> I should have a, uh, I think I've got a website. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, I do. I've got um, a website. So um, at Imperial College, if you just search my name in Imperial College, it'll link you to our, um, my lab's webpage. I've also got Twitter. So it's at Marine Steph is my Twitter handle, um, which I use intermittently, but I'm not very good at keeping on top of it all. <laughs> um so yeah i guess that's it and also i guess just having a google for some of the papers things that we have well that's great stephanie thanks for coming on the podcast i appreciate it thank you very much richard it's great talking to you and thanks for having me if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.